The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Peter. I'm one of the elders here. I'm actually the youngest elder, um, the hippest, the most with it. Um, I just lied to you. I'm actually the oldest elder, but kind of right here. Think of old people, but I'm one of the elders here. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to preach from Acts 17. Hopefully, that will be the most awkward thing I do uh, over the next couple of minutes. Uh, I'd like to pray. If you have a Bible with you, uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, uh, talking about missional engagement. Um, I won't project a lot of the text, but if you like to see it in front of you, I will read it as we go through the passage. Um, I know that uh, at least the Thursday night missional group was able to read and discuss the passage together. I was able to have a conversation with Dave on Friday just to kind of garner some of their insights. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Uh, but if it helps you to have the text in front of you, uh, we're going to be in Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. Uh, so I'm going to pray and then we'll get to it. God, we are grateful for these times together uh, to reflect on your word. I pray that your spirit would empower us to understand uh, that you would give us insight, not just into the content of the passage, but what it says about you, what it says about the ways that you're calling us, either individually or as a church in our city. I pray that you would give us excitement for what we see on the pages of your word, and especially as we think about our own context. Help us to hear this passage free of anxiety or guilt or shame, but to be receptive in these moments, to hear your voice amid all other competing voices, that we might have insight, that we might have a love for each other and for the city that you've planted us in. Bless this time, we pray. Amen. So this week and next, we're going to take a bit of a break from the Genesis series, and we're going to spend some time reflecting on missional engagement in our city. Um, I can only speak for myself, but I believe I can speak for others as well, that missional engagement um, is something that is becoming a front burner issue for us here uh, in Manchester. As we've all experienced the last two years, it's... uh, obviously been challenging, to put it mildly. It's been disorienting in a lot of ways on individual level, family level, uh, and even on the church level. And I'm among those who are hoping that we can recalibrate this year. Um, I know just by way of personal testimony, I felt like pre-COVID, I was experiencing what I wanted to be experiencing in Manchester in terms of bringing like all the things I was passionate about missionally under one banner and and being able to start getting some traction in that area. Uh, And then obviously the pandemic has thrown a lot of things off the rails, but at least for, for my perspective, really looking for this year to be, if not normal, something where we can kind of recalibrate and I can get back to those things that I am so zealous about. Um, And it has seemed over time that as a church, that has been a kind of a common conversation for us to have in pockets. Uh, It was the content of our family meeting a couple months ago, uh, and I I sense that a lot of us are kind of in the same place. So we're taking a two-week break from the Genesis uh, series to explore 
just in a little bit more depth what this might look like. So today what I want to do is I want to just exposit a passage um, that I think is interesting in and of itself, but also offers a very helpful paradigm as we try to engage our city uh, missionally um, and gives a sense of what faithful missional engagement might look like. I want to define terms very quickly. Um, I don't like to spend a lot of time in, in tedious definitions. If I'm unclear, feel free to come back at me in the Q&A and, and we can clarify. But to me, faithful is not like a throwaway word that just means correct or right. Like it means that it's something that's congruent with the example of Jesus. That's what faithful means. So faithful missional engagement would be something that's consistent uh, with the character of Jesus. And to be even more specific, uh, faithfulness to Jesus' example at a minimum means self-sacrificing love, period. Like I don't have a complicated paradigm. Uh, if it's involving Jesus, if it's involving faithfulness to Jesus, I think there's going to be some element of self-sacrificing love, and we'll get more on that uh, in a moment. Missional engagement to me is just being intentional about the way that we engage people. That's it. So we just want to we want to reflect Jesus to people. That can take a wide variety of different forms. Uh, I don't want to be at all prescriptive today to say like, well, there's one right way to do it. And for $26, I'll sell you that right way. Um, you know, follow my blog or my podcast. I don't know if anybody's blogging anymore, but podcasts are definitely like I don't have any any prescription for you to follow. I don't have insiders and outsiders. Um, it can take a wide variety of forms, but at its core, I think it means that I'm present to my friends and my family and my neighbors as I try to represent Jesus. That's what missional engagement means, at least in my definition. So I think that Paul's example of engagement here, it gives just a compelling and winsome way that it could look, right? not just in his speech, but more in the assumptions and motivations that underline the content of his speech. Um, and I think that these things are critically important. In order to navigate mission faithfully, we want to be tethered to the text, right? This is going to be as fundamentalist as I get. I want to be attached to a biblical version of what it looks like, right? Um, so, Whatever we believe about things, we want it to be uh, consistent and congruent with Scripture. So that's the same thing with mission. And that's how we apply all of Scripture, like when you really think about it. Uh, as we seek to follow Jesus, we want to look at how he engaged the people around him. For example, like if how we're thinking about conflict, we want to look and say, how did Jesus engage conflict, right? And there might be a chapter and verse about that, or there might just be kind of an overall example. How did Jesus relate to the people around him? If Jesus was confrontational, what were the circumstances in which he was confrontational? Who was he talking to? How did he go about it? If he was gentle, who was he gentle with, right? And I think one of the things that excites me about Christianity is there's this full wide range of ways that Jesus responded to people and not any one of them is the correct way. You have to look at a situation and say like, okay, Jesus goes into the temple. He's turning over tables. A very quick 
sloppy reading of that is like, I can just be aggressive in whatever context I want to be aggressive in without paying any attention at all to what was happening there. And completely ignoring the fact that Jesus fulfills, I think it's Isaiah 42, which says, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, right? That he is gentle in certain circumstances. He's not harsh. There are times um, where he, he can be. But we want to look at all of that. How did he respond to the people around him? And then I need to ask myself, what would it look like for me in my own setting to apply that in the same way? What would it look like to represent Jesus faithfully in the context that I'm in? Now, it might seem like this is obvious, but I think the last, I'll call it four years, if not the last six years in our society, just make it appear less than obvious, at least in my estimation. I'll spare you my long-winded social commentary, but I think it's fair to ask at any point if you hold a particular position or if you believe that relating to people in a particular way, if you believe that that's Christian, it's fair to ask where did that view uh, come from? And we might disagree on, on the finality. I'm deliberately avoiding specifics, so if you want to bring that up in the Q&A. I have very strong opinions on things. Um, so if, if you want to ask for specifics, go for it. I just think that it's important to be able to say, how did my faith lead me to this way of, uh, of living and acting? So we might disagree again, but we want to be tethered uh, to Scripture. And we want to look at just one example today of missional engagement. And I'm going to be honest with you up front. It's not the only example. There's lots of examples of the ways missional engagement might look, but I'm hoping that as we reflect on Paul's example here, we can imagine what it might look like in our own day-to-day -day operations. And I think it might be helpful at the beginning uh, just to sort of know who is uh, speaking to you or at you. Um, I have a particular story and a particular framework that makes me see things in a particular way, the same way we all do. So. Um, I did not grow up in the church, so I was actually the recipient of somebody's missional engagement. Like, it wasn't like I was eight years old. I was scared that some, and you know, everybody has a different story. Actually, just real quick, how many of you would consider yourself having grown up in a church setting? Okay, so we have very different experiences, right? So I was 18. It was my high school earth science teacher. Uh, who introduced me to Jesus for the first time. So I have that in my background, right? I do have a somewhat theologically informed perspective. Uh, I've lived in Manchester now for nearly 20 years, worked here for the last five, been active in ministry basically that entire time. So I have seen things, attempts, postures kind of come and go over like the course of decades. I'm also not like a professional minister. I teach at a public school, um, which means that I am also on the receiving end from time to time of people's missional engagement. Still, uh, that they, if I could just be a little direct for a second, there's sort of the assumption among conservatives that public educators were just fired out of the liberal canon into these buildings where it is supposed that I am indoctrinating them with various different things. So um, I teach math, so I'm not, I'm just indoctrinating them with algebra, which everybody loves, but whatever. 
Um, the idea, <laughs> sometimes myself and my teammates are on the receiving end of rather terse, uh, I would say rude emails, but it has a religious and or Christian salutation at the end of it. So I'm still even now on the receiving end of people's uh, missional engagement. So I have a perspective on all of those things. Uh, and I don't mean to be mean or mock anybody. I have a category of um, surprise meetings in the new heavens and the new earth where people who like send me those emails like will be shocked that that I'm there participating like in, in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, but also probably more seriously, like I can take that and, and sort of chuckle and, and that's it. But I hear how my coworkers respond to that. And they don't come from a place of just being able to laugh that off. So, so my perspective um, is, uh, I think, fairly well-rounded on this. Um, and I'm not meaning to sound arrogant at, at all. I just, when I engage this stuff, I engage it in a particular way. Um, and I, I come from a certain perspective. So um, my hope is that as we read this passage and we get through it together, uh, that we can be excited and have some conversations around these ideas. So my main point today is that faithful missional engagement maintains love for God and love for neighbor. And I think as we tease out what's happening here with Paul, I think that this is what we're going to see. And I think that this should be at the heart of our own missional engagement as well. So I'm going to read. Um, actually, first, I think we're going to see three things here. I think you're going to see that faithful missional engagement is attentive. I think that you're going to see that in Paul's example. I think I have these up on the next slide. It's attentive. I think in Paul's speech at the Areopagus, you're going to see that Paul, at faithful missional engagement, actually speaks the language of the people that he's talking to. Like his proclamation actually goes to where people are and doesn't try to wedge them into the box that he's holding. And finally, and maybe most importantly, faithful missional engagement accepts the response. What you're going to see is People respond in diverse ways, so it shouldn't surprise us that people are going to respond to us in diverse ways. So um, I, I think that we can see in all of these things an example of what it might look like. So uh, I'm going to read verses 16 to 23 under the heading, Faithful Missional Engagement is Attentive. So Acts says this, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idol babbler wish to say? Others he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that, that uh, know what you, wait a minute. May we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to hear what these things mean. Now all Athenians and the strangers visiting there and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new so paul stood up in the midst of the areopagus and said men of athens 
I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So I think in this first set of verses, as we all know, Paul's not stationed in a single church. It's not Pastor Paul at First Church Jerusalem or anything. His pattern of travel through throughout Acts generally seems to be he goes into a new place, he goes to the synagogue, and then his ministry opportunities branch out from there. And that makes sense. You go to a strange place, you start with people who are generally sympathetic to what you believe. So he starts in the synagogue, and then gradually he branches out from there. Now, this section begins with the statement that Paul was, he was provoked, or another way to translate that is he was stirred in his spirit when he saw the idolatry in the city. It's also worth noting that this takes place, and this is a direct quote, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. So it's not like they had a specific plan, like, okay, we're going to go to Athens. It's not like he had the five-year plan or five steps to ministry in Athens. It's just sort of like as he was waiting there for his traveling companions to come through, he was just observant. He was attentive. So that's where the faithful missional engagement is attentive comes from. And Paul's just ready to go all the time. And I think that where we see the love of God and the love of neighbor here is... He's stirred in his spirit. Like that language is unique. It's, I mean, not completely unique, but Paul's stirred up, which I think reflects a love for God, that he sees the idolatry in the city and that that provokes and stirs him. Um, and I think that these are the sorts of principles that we can tease out. So he ministers in the synagogue and in the marketplace. And he's actually invited to speak at the Areopagus because of the novelty of what he's saying. Now, Paul's not a winsome speaker, right? You, you can't make a very strong case from the New Testament that Paul's really all that compelling, which gives the rest of us hope. Like, one of the best stories is when, like, somebody falls asleep while he's preaching and they, like, fall out the window. Like, that, I mean, the person had to be raised, and so that was interesting. But, you know, even Paul, the greatest missionary of all time, was putting people to sleep. So. Um, and the Corinthians obviously didn't have much, much, uh, much of a high opinion of Paul's preaching either. So anyway, it's not the winsome of his, his speech. It's just what he's saying is so odd. Um, and it doesn't mean we have to go out of our way to be strange as Christians. I think that you're proclaiming a God who offers himself on behalf of other people, like the God who made the world and everything in it offers himself as sacrifice for sin. Like the content alone is, is strange enough. You don't have to make it any more weird than that. Um, and they, they refer to him as an idle babbler. Now, what's interesting here is, can you think, actually, as you look at the text, what's the doctrinal point that makes them, like, uh, this weird? you see it? There's a single doctrinal point. Starts with an R. Resurrection. Once he gets to the resurrection, then all of a sudden they're like, this is weird. Um, and why is that? I think first and most obvious, the idea that someone who was dead and came back to life, that's strange in and of itself. But the physical res resurrection doesn't fit with any ancient philosophy, right? So he's talking to Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. They don't have any concept of what resurrection might look like. 
And it's not just that it's impossible for a dead person to be brought back to life in their view. Um, it flies in the face of all Greco-Roman philosophy that we would be affirming the physical body. The fact that Jesus was raised in his body, that's weird. The idea that the God who made the world and everything in it actually was raised in the body that he had and that the body is a good thing, physicality, embodiment, that those are actually good things. They understood that resurrection is an affirmation of those things. That's what's so odd about it. Um, and I'd be happy to point you to resources that, that would spell that out in more detail. So the fact that, that Jesus was raised in his body is a statement that embodied existence matters. Now, just really quickly on Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, I don't want to be too tedious here. Epicureans, if you think of hobbits, right, if you've read the Lord of the Rings, read the Hobbit, they, this is the Epicureans. It's the philosophy of the garden. The garden is the center of their communal life. It's a place of tranquility. Um, they're not hedonistic, like they're not prone to excess, but they do like to party, right? They like gardening. They have high ideals of friendship. Like if I had to pick an ancient philosophy, like I would want to hang out with the Epicureans. They're not like, they're not prone to like too much partying, uh, but they, they know how to get down. So that's, that's the Epicureans. And then the Stoics, I always sort of thought of them as like the Jedi, that they're just passionless and like they wouldn't want mayonnaise in their tuna fish because that would make the sandwich too enjoyable. Uh, like they're just always like they're masters of self-control. They, they're, they're not attached to anything. That's when you say a person's stoic, it's usually like there's a, a lifelessness in their face. They're not quite as much fun as the Epicureans, but they they were there. So Jesus, you know, or Paul talks to them, too, because they're present. But I sense that he would really like to party with the Epicureans. Um, that is my own opinion. That's not in the text. But again, happy to point you in that direction. The point is that Paul's content, which we'll get to in a second, speaks meaningfully to their philosophy. So when we say faithful missional engagement is attentive, what Paul is saying speaks to what they believe. And I think the line of application here is pretty clear. Do we know enough of the philosophy of the people around us to be able to speak truth? So consider your own friends and neighbors. What are the issues that they're facing? How can the gospel be brought to bear on those issues, right? How does the gospel speak truth and light and God's love into the circumstances that your neighbor is dealing with? It requires attentiveness. It's not as simple as pigeonholing people and saying like, well, you're a Epicurean, so here's what you believe. Like people are far more complex than that. And I think that if we want to be faithful in our missional engagement, if we want to follow Jesus in this way, that's what it's going to look like. We have to be really present to people and, quite frankly, knowledgeable about what they're going through. Um, we'll talk about this as, as we continue. It's also worth considering, if you're thinking like application questions, similar to what Paul's facing, what stirs you? Like, what is the thing that really agitates you, as it did Paul? Like, he's sitting and he's looking at the idolatry in the city, um, and he's provoked by that. Like, I just want to poke people with a stick to say, what are you passionate about? Um, like, what's the thing that you really want to go after? Um, so 
Uh, and not in angry or aggressive ways. Like, I, I hope I'm not too forceful. I, I was leaning forward, so hopefully I wasn't too aggressive. But it's important to note here that Paul doesn't go after them in aggressive and obnoxious ways. So when, when we think about what stirs us, we always have to fall back on how can I execute this in a Christ-like way? Like, I can be attentive to what God is doing inside me. I can be provoked in a particular way. Um, and then I go after it in the way that Jesus would, whatever that, whatever that might look like. And Paul's missional life reflects Jesus in my mind. So as we consider what stirs us, it can be uh, incredibly helpful um, in, in knowing where Jesus is leading us. I know during an, our family meeting back in uh, January, or February, excuse me, we used uh, Jeremiah. Can we bring up the next slide. I'll try to drag out the word there. This Jeremiah 29 in terms of like, what is it that stirs you? And Jeremiah says, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart as if it were a burning fire shut up in my bones and I'm weary with holding it in and I can't. Like, just imagine that that frames your missional engagement. There is just something inside of me to express that God is calling me to, and I can't not express it. And I don't know what that is for you, and I hope that we can discern that together. But it's not something born out of guilt or shame. It's this fire in the bones that, like, I can't not be a part of what's happening here. That's what Paul experiences here. I can't not confront the idolatry around me. So what's that thing that is just stirring you? What's the thing that you can't get away from? Not guilt or shame or anxiety or should, none of that, but something that is uh, a great area of passion. We could fill this out a little bit more in the Q&A if you're so inclined. So when Paul's moment to speak comes, he uses his observations about Athens as his launching point. He's attentive to what, what they're on about, which brings us to our second point. Faithful missional engagement speaks the language. And I'll read verses 24 to 31. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when we come to the actual content of Paul's message, I think we see 
just a remarkable example of communicating theology. As we're skimming through that, would you say, and this is like not rhetorical, I'm going to ask you a question, sorry, be prepared. Um, too much talking on my part. Does Paul communicate a very clear biblical theology here? Don't be shy. Jump right in there. You got a 50-50 shot at it. I can outlast middle schoolers with algebra. You got nothing on me. I'll wait all day. Does he communicate a biblical theology? Yes. Okay, there we go. All right. What's one area of doctrine where he communicates that faithfully? How does he start? The God who made the world and everything in it, right? He, he's quoting, or he's actually not quoting, he's communicating a brilliant biblical theology. Does he quote scripture? I saw, he doesn't. Not, he doesn't say, as Genesis says, who or what does he quote? They're poets. So he is appropriating Epimenides. That's the poet that he's quoting here. He's taking their poet and communicating. See, even your own poets point to this. And if we look at the content as well as the structure of it, I think we see something really interesting here. Can we go to the next what if this is the only gospel that they know? And this is the content. The God who made everything, who controls everything, he actually doesn't need anything. That's a biblical idea about God. He doesn't chapter and verse it. It also says that God can't be confined to a temple. It says that created human beings, God created human beings that they might seek him, even though he's not far from us. Like, that's a remarkable statement about God. And I think, at least as I'm imagining my context, something quite comforting. Human beings are children of God. And then we start to get into God has graciously overlooked ignorance, but now he's calling people to repent. It also says that he's fixed a day for judgment and that resurrection is the proof of that. He's appointed a person, Jesus, and he's proven that that's the person who gets to execute judgment because he raised him from the dead. Now, there's a lot to break down here in terms of content, but I'd love for us to envision that this is what our gospel looks like. Paul's gospel, like the Bible itself, starts with a generous creator who maintains the perfect balance of power and proximity, right? Now, this speaks into our own circumstances, but it also speaks to the philosophy of the day. For them, they would have no concept that a God, personal God, who knows people, would actually create things intentionally. And I could bore you to tears with, I could start with pre-Socratic philosophy and go through the entire Greco-Roman range of creation accounts. I could just sum it up as chaotic. They would have no concept here that a, a God who actually understands people would have intentionally created everything. But he's not a God who's just far off and distant. He actually has this balance of proximity. Paul says he's not far from each one of us. 
And this speaks into the uh, philosophy of their day. So Paul speaks the language. And imagine if that's the God that we were introducing people to. Paul's example here, um, and just to give a personal example from a moment, I mentioned uh, Jeff Anderson, who was the teacher who introduced me to Jesus. His witness, honestly, it, it frames a lot of how I view my Christianity in general and how I view missional engagement as well. Um, and I think there's a sense in which our introduction to the gospel frames how we hear it and how we continue to hear it year after year. Uh, and for Jeff, just that's just an observation. I can't prove that. But for Jeff, I knew there was a chance, at least, that God loved me because I knew that Jeff did. And as the years and the decades have gone by, I'm just so grateful to God that it was Jeff and it wasn't somebody else in that position to witness to me. Because Jeff was not aggressive or harsh I didn't get the sense that it was a sales pitch or that he was checking me off a list of, like, I can go back and tell my Bible study that I witnessed to this obnoxious high schooler from upstate New York. Jeff really cared about me, and I sensed that. So I knew the God that he, I wouldn't have framed it this way at the time, but I knew there's at least a shot that God loves me because I know that Jeff does. And I'm grateful to have these things baked into the foundation of my faith. And I'm grateful for Jeff's example of that. Now, to shift back to Paul, I find it compelling that he presents the gospel in this way. He's doing his utmost to communicate the message in a way that people will hear. And that's what missional engagement is. You go to where people are. You don't draw them to you and try to wedge them into this pre-existing box. Right? Now, if you're a little bit put off by the fact I say he doesn't quote scripture, your argument's with Paul, not me, but you can also back up a couple of chapters where Paul or Peter, where they're engaging a, a Jewish audience and they start with Abraham, right? <laughs> Why? Because they wouldn't need to be told that there was a God who made the world and everything in it. Like Jewish people would have accepted that. It would have been a wasted, you know, first sermon point. So he starts with Abraham and there's tons of Old Testament quotations to prove that Jesus is the Christ, right? So what I'm suggesting is that the context that you're in dictates how you should be missional. Like if you're talking to a group of people who don't accept scripture as authoritative, I think you've got to find a different way to communicate it. And it's not me saying that. This is Paul's example. So again, argument is, is with Paul. But if you have somebody who grew up in a church setting who maybe is marginally aware of what the Bible says and might be conversant with that, then go ahead and do that. Like that's, that's legitimate as well. You'll see that in Acts 13 and 14. But for right now, Paul is actually appropriating their own poets to show that this is the journey that they've been on all along, right? Even their own poets have attested to this. And just imagine missional engagement that starts with, what do we have in common? What's the journey that you're already on, right? And how is it just one tiny step toward following Jesus, right? For some people, that will be the case. And not only that, this God who he, we know is Jesus is someone 
that they've been searching for too. They just can't name him yet. Like, just imagine that sort of approach versus less Christ-like models that just try to point out how wrong and immoral a person is. And let's start with that. Like, starting with how stupid a person is because they're not Christians. And I know almost nobody says it that way, but that's sometimes how it can feel to people. Like, we have the truth. You pagans don't. Come and get it. Like, is I don't know. <laughs> that's not, and I guess those are the things I see where I'm like, thank God it was Jeff. Because I would not have responded to that. Right? Jeff was respectful. He didn't ridicule our questions, even if they were dumb questions. Like, he spoke in a way that was gracious, and he he was friends with us. So, anyway, that's just my experience. You may have a different one. But I think that's good news. A God that wants to be found by the people that he made, I think that's good news. And just imagine that for your friends and neighbors. Like a lot of people, if not all people, already have a sense of love and joy and gratitude, a sense of transcendence that they can't quite name, right? We know it as Jesus. They don't yet. And then to introduce them to Jesus, the human face of God, the thing that gives specificity to all that joy and all that satisfaction, like who puts a human face on it, that's amazing. The author of life, the creator of all things, all these things ultimately derive from him. And we could serve, if we're attentive enough, we could serve to make that introduction. And to put it another way, just imagine your Christianity starting with joy and not guilt. Right? Imagine what that, what that would look like. That discipleship and mission and work and life, it all fell under the banner of this gracious creator. That God is not constantly angry or disappointed with you, um, but that he's dealt with our sin and corruption fully and finally, but that he wants to be found by people. That that's what this passage says. Now, I don't want to be seen as soft on sin or anything, but I think it is important here. Paul doesn't lead with sin. And I think functionally, there's times where it feels like the Bible starts with Genesis 3 and human corruption instead of Genesis 1. And I think that this example is helpful in this way. Paul doesn't shy away from sin. He does talk about corruption. He says that God's overlooked the time of ignorance. Um, He's not shying away from it, but he doesn't lead with it. Does that make sense? That it's not the first thing that they need to know about God. At least in Paul's view, it's the God who made the world and everything in it. And there's a lot to say about this. And I don't think, I mean, personally, I guess I would just say, I don't think fear and guilt and shame are fuel that can ultimately sustain a person. And I think that when your faith starts with that, I think that colors your journey in Jesus. I hope that that makes sense. And if if I'm saying something that you find really like unsettling or like I think it's all tethered to the passage here, but I'm happy to like amplify more of that. Um, I think that the gospel in and of itself is an invitation into the life of God himself. And I think that it encompasses everything. Um, and I think that if we introduce the gospel in that way, it's, it's winsome. 
So to be fair, as I mentioned, it's not the only way to communicate the message, but that's what Paul decides to do. He doesn't try to wedge them into a box. He speaks their language. And if I could just carry it into application for a moment, do we know the gospel well enough to be able to communicate it in a way that other people can understand? I think that's a fair question for us. Sometimes when you're in a church, and again, because of my experience, I feel like I have one foot firmly in the church and one foot firmly in the world. Do people that we're inviting, do they speak the language that we speak? Or is it jargon-laden? This is what we deal with in education all the time, where I have to raise my hand and say, nobody who is outside of education will have any idea what you're talking about. Like, as we try to think about things that we want to present to parents, I'm like, I've been an educator for about 18 years now, and I don't even understand what you're saying, to say nothing of somebody outside. I think the same thing in terms of our Christianity. Paul here is attentive. He speaks the language. He appropriates their poets. Do we know the gospel well enough to be able to communicate it in this way? And then finally, faithful missional engagement accepts the response. Verses 32 and 34, briefly. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So finally, and very briefly, faithful missional engagement accepts the response. Paul gets mocked by some people for preaching the resurrection. Others are kind of open. They're on the fence. They say, we'll hear you again on this matter. Um, some decide to follow him. The response of others is not our job. And I think what Paul models here is that he's faithful in his proclamation, but he also seems content to walk away. That there's no sense in which he just stays with them and kind of argues, almost like a social media feed where people are going back and forth for 78 different comments. And then it's so absurd by the end, like nobody really believes what they're saying by comment 35. Like at that point, you're just saving face, right? I, I'm not much of a social media warrior, but I've read enough of people's comments. I'm like, you don't really believe that, do you? Like, no, you're 10 comments deep and you're just too proud to let it go. So then you're making ridiculous arguments. Paul doesn't seem to do that. Um, so we don't know whether he reads the landscape. Maybe he determines that you just can't argue with some people or whether he senses that they're not going to respond. But we can infer that he's just content to leave the results in God's hands, right? There's a mixed response, and it's not Paul's job. I think this is something we also see in Jesus' example. Think of the rich young ruler in Mark 10. The call of Jesus is clear, and it's uncompromising, right? And the man's idolatry is confronted, right? He's, he's read a list of the, uh, the commandments. Oh, good, I kept all those. And then Jesus tells him to give up everything and sell it to the poor. Like, oof, okay. You had me at nine out of 10. But in this case, Jesus doesn't persist in arguing. He just lets him go. I think there are good principles to glean from that. I think um, if I were going to give some recommendations for how to cultivate this sort of humble 
acceptance of the response, I do see it as connected to our overall identity in Jesus. That if we're secure in the Father's love as Jesus was, we know that it's not our job. Like when we see Paul's example all through his letters, he seems content to just leave those things to God, that his identity is not tied to it. Um, and I think that there are regular rhythms, you're probably not surprised to hear me say, that, that can foster this sense of identity. Um, and I think Jesus engaged them himself. Uh, I think that what's critical for me is a strong sense of identity that's based on like the friendships that you maintain, the media that you consume, uh, all, all of that stuff, um, I think is, is important. Be happy to talk through specifics if that's where questions go. But I think that this passage provides a very helpful uh, template for us to think about missional engagement. And I think some good questions are, are we attentive both to God and to others? Are we fluent in the language? Like as we live in Manchester, if you're not signed up for the taco tour, you should be, because that's like a major thing in Manchester. Like you want to know the lay of the land. You've been to the taco tour? It's been two years. It's been like the most exciting I'm like counting down the days of the taco tour. You can probably tell even now as I think about it. Um, if you work for a business that could help sponsor the taco tour, sorry. Uh, ben and Jerry's has a good, ta- a good dessert taco. Anyway, um, fluent in the language. And is our gospel big enough to, con- to speak to the concerns of the people around us in our day-to-day life? Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.